1: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Ohioan Podcast. Craig Schaub here with you, and a very special guest, George Thomas, Akron Beacon Journal sports writer, uh, film critic. How are you doing, George?
2: Well, it's warm now. I think the last time we spoke, we were still in the frozen tundra, we might have been. Yeah,
1: Yeah, we're recording on Thursday, and we've, we've had a little bit of a heat wave here in the, in the state. Um, I feel like I'm about ready to melt. Honestly, it's it's a little uh, uncomfortably warm because we're so used to sort of the spring-like temperatures where we're fluctuating between the 50s and 60s every day. So today seems a lot. That's difference, isn't it? Yes, it is. But today, also, uh, since all you know, full disclosure, we do report here on Thursday. Uh, today is National Streaming Day, so maybe people can stay inside, stay cool, and uh, maybe watch uh, some of their favorite programs or movies or whatever they want to watch on streaming networks. You know what?
2: With, with all due respect, with one of the first 80 degree days of, <laughs> of the year of the season and, uh, coming allegedly coming out of the pandemic, I think most people are going to say screw
1: national streaming day. Probably, probably, but thankfully, thankfully for us, we have you to watch some things for us. And we know that you, uh, recently watched Zack Snyder's latest film. He's had a busy year so far with the release of his uh, Justice League cut. But now he comes back to the zombie genre here with Army of the Dead. Uh, George, you know, Zack Snyder's a pretty polarizing figure in the directing community. Some people love him. Some people hate him. Very few are in between, I think. I guess I would classify myself as somewhat in between, although uh, most of his movies I have not liked. The only movie that I have liked is Watchmen. Other than that, I really have not liked anything that he's really done. Uh, but tell us a little bit about Army of the Dead. What did you think? Well,
2: I'm just going to start you off with this, Craig. The opening credits have five to seven minutes of slow. <laughs> oh. He was thinking of you. <laughs> he must have. I just... <laughs> five to seven minutes. I'm, I'm sitting there like, really? Yeah. Okay. Why is he doing this instead of just getting into his damn movie? But okay, all right, it's his movie. Netflix gave him the cash. And, you know, it's got an interesting premise, or at least it's interesting to me in that it's um, it's a mashup of a heist film with a zombie film. And it's like, sure. okay, that's different, kind of. But um, it, stars, it stars Dave Bautista, better known as Drax from uh, – yeah. The MCU. He actually gets to show that, yes, indeed, he can act a little bit. Um, and a mysterious, aren't they all mysterious, businessman <laughs> okay. comes to him. Well, let, 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 let me start with this. That, that opening sequence, the army's transporting a se- secret cargo, right?
0: Okay.
2: And um <laughs> Um, During the course of transport, an absolutely freakish accident happens, courtesy of uh, a sexual act, and an Army driver not paying attention to what he's doing. Crash, boom, cargo falls off the the trailer, and they call the, the, the soldiers involved. Call headquarters, and the first thing they're being told is get the hell out of there. <laughs> so you know what happens next, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. They go investigate.
0: <laughs> Why not? And right.
2: And it turns out this it's it says a ripped, huge zombie-like dude, and you know he's got a chance to create minions, and he turns them Im- immediately. Fast forward. Zombification spreads like coronavirus. Okay. (laughs) And they've turned Las Vegas, this one zombie has turned Las Vegas into Zombie Central. Mysterious businessman comes to Dave Bautista's character and says, hey, look, Las Vegas is zombified. But I know of $200 million in this safe. In this casino, where if you get it, I'll give you 25%. 25%. I'll cut you in for a quarter. They assemble this team of mercenaries, for lack of a better term. Nice cast in that. The Tig, are you familiar with Tig Notaro? Yeah. Love her. She's on Star Trek Discovery. She's got a dry wit, stand-up comedian. Just absolutely love her. And she and Bautista are probably the best things about the film. Because being a Zack Snyder film, there has to be some absurdity here and there. And, you know, you get the the typical super macho characters. Surprise, surprise. But we get a pregnant zombie, too.
0: Okay.
2: A pregnant zombie. We get a a zombified tiger. Oh,
1: okay.
2: Who used to work with Siegfried and Roy. And it's like, you know, it held promise. I I like the idea of the mashup, but right. it didn't hold my attention in any regard. And here's the killer. It really didn't hold my attention. And it's like two hours and 24 minutes long. Oh, wow. Zach has never, never heard of the word brevity. He <laughs> really hasn't. It's not in his vocabulary. It's not in his film style. He has not. He doesn't know how to do it. And you know, it is what it is. You get if you're a fan of this stuff, you're gonna get the gratuitous violence. You're gonna get the blood and guts. You're in this case, you're gonna get the the zombie fetus shown in all its go- okay. glory. Not glory, gory. Um, <laughs> And it's just, I wouldn't watch this again if they paid me.
1: (laughs) Well, in in full disclosure, too, for those who may be listening, uh, just to to put that to bed that, you know, George did like the Snyder cut of the Justice League. So don't don't think that we're hating on Zack Snyder and we're going to hate a movie like no matter what he does because, you know, George, you did like, and I also like his – recutting of the Snyder Cut version of Justice League. And see,
2: i see. I'd love Man of Steel. So I yeah. I'm, I'm willing to give him his just deal but it's like yeah. he's got some bad habits and yeah. if, you, if you're being honest you have to acknowledge he's got we don't need five to seven minutes of slow, slow motion of an opening credits. I don't care how cool the shots are. I really yeah. don't. You're, you're, you're me out of it before it starts
1: right there's there's use of slow-mo but then there's also just overindulgence in it and five to seven minutes is just way over the indulgence level um you know obviously snyder has you know been in this genre before of course 17 years ago he kind of broke out a little bit with dawn of the dead um i did you like that movie i don't really recall it so much i don't remember liking it really i did it's kind of a forgettable movie for me i'm not really a zombie fan unless it's like Shaun of the Dead, which incorporates the comedy with with the violence. But uh, did you like Dawn of the Dead? I only remember seeing it... Shaun
2: of the Dead or Dawn of the Dead? Dawn of
0: the Dead. I
1: only
2: only remember seeing it vaguely because I was still reviewing full-time back then. So I would have had to have seen it. And, you know, remembering it vaguely means... You know, it didn't leave a great impression with me. Sure. I, I mean, zombie stuff, obviously from from The Walking Dead, has it's its own genre. It's right. its own sub genre. It has untold fans. And no disrespect to it, but this this falls under the heading of okay, how many times can I watch somebody bite into flesh, crush a skull, right, rip a heart out? And blood just gush everywhere. And it's like,
1: no. And I've never been enamored with zombie movies, primarily because I don't think they make for interesting villains. Um, you know, that's been one of my biggest bugaboos with, with zombie films is that it's basically just mindless violence to just see how cool you can blow a zombie's head off or, you know, dismember it. Um, so I've, I've never really been a big fan of zombie movies, primarily because of the lack of uh, intriguing villains. I agree. Now, see, I will give him credit to speak to that point. He
2: tries to inc- to to create an intriguing villain, right? But the problem is, you know, you're gonna you can predict what he's gonna do. You can predict what's what, what's gonna happen, and you can predict the requisite violence that's gonna come with it. And right. it's like, and it's two and a half hours of it. And right. it's like, eh, no thanks.
1: Well, a couple of uh, interesting sidebars. I mean, this is the first movie Zack Snyder has made in 15 years uh, outside of the Warner brothers umbrella. Obviously, you know, Netflix is investing a lot into this movie. They also gave it a, at least a 600 screen theatrical release. Uh, So it seems like Netflix is is maybe trying to partner up here with Zack and, and maybe make this a partnership that he kind of had with Warner brothers. If they're going to, Give him what he wants to, you know, give him that money that he wants to use for whatever his project is, and also give it a theatrical release.
2: Um, I'll put it to you this way: the best way I can answer that is with, um, have you watched Jupiter's Legacy at all? You check it. Any... I have not yet. I have not. Okay. Yet. The act. I interviewed the actor who played George in that series. His name's Matt Lanter. He's from Maselen, and he said point blank, "If you're, if you're an actor." Filmmaker, whatever, Netflix is a place you want to be, or one of the places you want to be right now. Right. And and as a way to, to segue into something else we're going to talk about, it, Warner Brothers, for instance, is former, Zack Snyder's former partner, kind of burned some bridges. Yes. Their day and date release strategy for films for this year. I mean, um, Christopher Nolan pitched a hissy fit over that. Yes. And, you know, what a lot of these people and another example, Scorsese, somebody mm-hmm. gets $160 million to make a three hour gangster epic, you know, he's going to want to work with them. Right. And, and that's that's what they see in Netflix. Someone who will work with them, take their name, but give them complete autonomy and creative control. Right. And and. You know, if that's where Snyder's gonna be, more power to him. He won't have a, a, a studio suit suit or bean counter looking over his shoulder, screaming at him about the money he's spending, or telling him, No, this can't happen because right. we don't want it to happen that way. He's gonna be left alone.
1: Yeah. Well, I think uh, I think the comparison was Netflix is investing like sixteen billion dollars over the course of this year on new original content, whereas warner's right now with hbo max is, is spending about two billion dollars which is a lot of money but it dries up very quickly when you're trying to make you know studio level movies when you're investing a lot of money into directors you know stars and just you know making sure the project's a good project and uh, you know it, it's uh, it's a big disparity and i think that's what you you know goes back to your point with people want to work for netflix because they're giving them the ball and letting them run and you know, I don't see why anybody wouldn't want to gravitate towards that. Although I would be interested to see if Christopher Nolan would, given the fact that he has been adamant about theatrical release has to be a part of his process, and Netflix can do that, but they don't necessarily—they haven't really pushed their chips all in and say we'll give you a wide release like you normally would for Inception or the Dark Knight trilogy, things like that. Agreed, but but one they what they do do is around Christmas time. With,
2: with award season they're gonna do that they're gonna give yeah. you that time of year um, I'm curious I, I haven't looked at the box office numbers for Army of the Dead last week I'm curious to know how it did um, but they are they are as far as being a a place for creatives and I hate I hate that term right.
1: you know, <laughs>
2: a a, po- a place for for filmmakers to go they're it.
1: Right. We're in the top yeah. three
2: right now. Uh, one of the things behind that, that merger we saw this week, the first first thing I noticed, the new chairman of what will be what I'm hearing will become Warner Discovery. Right. Is is what they're pitching the name of the company to be. What what I'm hearing is is the first thing the new CEO, whatever you want to call it, he wants to repair those relationships. And I read a thing where they, they said they were going to invest $20 billion in, in in new projects. Right. That's a vast difference from, difference from where they were.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And really, before we get to that, I do want to get to that really quickly in, in a nice segue. But, you know, you mentioned Dave Batista standing out in this movie. And Uh, Most people might know him as Drax from the Guardians of the Galaxy, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Some people may know him from his wrestling days. He's kind of carved out sort of an interesting acting niche here. I mean, I I really thought he stood out in a very limited role in Blade Runner 2049. Uh, He's going to be in Dune this year. He's really kind of uh, taking on some interesting projects.
2: Well, the one thing, and I read this in an interview with him, he told... His manager, his his team, his management team, is that he didn't, he wasn't interested in being the Rock.
1: Right.
2: He wasn't disparaging the Rock. Right. But it's like he wanted to be known as an actor first. Then he's going to go off and do this this other stuff. But it's like he's already got a franchise that he's well known to, right? Well known for. So it's like I get the strategy. It makes sense. He he's. He's getting Marvel money, but he, so he can go do what he wants. So it's, it's, it's an interesting strategy. It's an intelligent
1: strategy. If if you're interested in in doing good work. Yeah. I think it's paying off for him. I mean, like I said, he was very, you know, he's this big hulking guy, but he's funny in in Guardians of the Galaxy in that cinematic universe and Marvel. But then he, he played a very understated character who was getting ready to get into a, you know, a knockdown, dragout fight with Ryan Gosling's character in Blade Runner 2049. Interested to see what he does here with Dune this year. But uh, I, I'm glad you pointed him out because I wanted to talk a little bit about him before we moved on. Because I, I've kind of found it intriguing that the path he has taken from his, you know, early days, his wrestling days, to now where he's at. And it's kind of an intriguing uh, career that he's starting to, to, to carve out a little bit. Here.
2: You know, it's it's nice to see somebody like that respect the process. And that's basically what he's doing, right? He's respecting
1: the process. And I, I, I most definitely appreciate that. Absolutely. Well, we, we just, uh, we kind of hinted at it quite a bit there. The, the merger that uh, came down a couple of days ago, Warner media now going to be pairing up with discovery, which kind of seems like an interesting uh, possible, you know, realm of possibility where you could get a lot of cross, you know, crossover with some of the shows you might find on discovery plus and, for those of you who may not know, Discovery Plus owns properties like Food Network, Animal Planet, TLC, things like that, where they've really kind of carved a niche out with their, uh, you know, five dollar a month, or I think it's ad-supported uh, that they have for Discovery Plus. Now they're coming in here with with Warner Media. What did what did you make of this? Did you did you kind of look at this as maybe AT punting on HBO Max?
2: It's AT and T on or, 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 or punting on content in general. Right. I mean I, that merger, that that takeover with, with Warner Brothers, on one level it made sense. Right. In that if you know anything about the entertainment business, if you know anything about the computer business, software over hardware. Content is king.
1: Right.
2: So I I I got the strategy. The problem is you have to have the right people to implement the strategy. Right. And it's kind, it was, we're in this big transition, but it's, it, you have to have somebody who understands old Hollywood and how to best make, help them make that transition to, to what's new, what's coming. Day and date releases for films, I was, I'm like, no way. Can't do this. We can't afford to do it. I mean, immediately in announcing that, they gave up at least a third of their revenue. At least a third. Um, Box office still makes tons of money in the United States. I think pre-pandemic it was around $12 billion. Right. U.S. box office. And and yet you're basically gonna give this away for fifteen dollars a month, right? And um it 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 didn't make sense, and you know, all the kids were happy, right? All the kids who want to watch these movies on their phones, like oh no, this is this is this is easy, this is great, right? This is gonna be no problem. The problem is the economics don't work. That's the problem. If if, if everything goes to streaming, you can either look for seriously inflated prices for streaming services or those big bombastic marvel and dc films that they love where the budgets are 200 million dollars plus they're going bye-bye because nobody's making that investment
1: because there's no return on investment you know i i saw a rumor i don't know if this has been confirmed by a lot of the popular outlets but it, going back to your point earlier where maybe the leadership needs to step in and, and, and repair these relationships with some of the people they angered uh, with the day and date release, it looks like Dune, which is scheduled for an October 1st release, may only be going to theaters at this point, although I, I saw a couple of rumblings on that. I have not seen anybody really confirm or deny that rumor right now. I predict if pandemic
2: numbers, if, if COVID numbers keep going down, you're going to see Dune get what's will pass for the traditional theatrical window. Now, I I don't know
1: if that's 90 days now, or if it's shorter than 90 days, you know, I think Paramount plus is going to their sort of real, not day and date release, but their release model was going to be 45 day theatrical and then transition over to Paramount plus, which, what do you think about that? Is that a better compromise than obviously the day and date release that we're seeing or let's, best example,
2: best way for me to answer that is with this. You're in your what, 40s? I'm
1: 37.
2: Sorry. okay. (laughs) Okay. I'm 12 years old. I saw Star Wars in the theaters in 1977. Star Wars stayed in the theater for a year. Um... Since then, the window has been shrinking and shrinking. Yeah. Movies used to, used to, and what we're not going to see as much anymore, movies used to build momentum by word of mouth. Right. Technology has changed all that. that that's what's going on. Um, how it's going to work out? I think you see a lot of movies today, and this was even pre pandemic. After that first six weeks, most of them run out of steam. Right. It's the smaller films that stick around. It's that small, interesting film that's there for for more than four to six weeks now. So, in one respect, it's a big change. In another respect, uh, not so much. Right. Maybe that maybe with this, that smaller film gets more attention, right. or gets, it gets a chance to find its legs. Because perfect example, I could never imagine seeing *Cinema Paradiso* or *Life Is Beautiful* on on a TV screen. For right. So maybe that happens.
1: You know, I'm. am We talked about this last week. I love going to the theater. You love going to the theater. It's what you grew up on. It's what I grew up on. Um, I kind of feel like in. in it, this is just my opinion, but I kind of feel like the theater, people are still going to go to the theater. I think Godzilla versus Kong sort of proved that if someone wants to go to the theater, they're going to go. I watched Godzilla versus Kong on HBO Max the next, you know, the, the same, or the next day that it was released, and you know, I have a great 4K setup, it's a great TV, I'm really, I, I really love it, but I realized that I probably I don't know if I would have seen that movie in theaters. I might have, but you know, again, tickets are expensive. You're paying a lot, a lot of money to go to the movies. You want to see what you want to see, but I kind of feel like the types of movies that are going to thrive more in this day and date release are, um, you know, like Judas and the Black Messiah got a lot more audience, I think, because people could watch it at home. You know, those who wish me dead. So movies, movies that like that or the little things, the Denzel Washington movie. I think movies like that maybe thrive a little bit more with this blend of cinema and streaming, whereas Godzilla versus Kong, which probably helped the streaming app, you know, get, you know, get subscriptions and stuff, but they also did well at the box office. So I kind of feel like, if people are gonna go to the movies, they're gonna go. And the people that used to go to the movies are gonna go when they feel safe and, and ready to go. And then I think the, the ancillary is, you're gonna get people like me, that I would not have been able to watch Judas and the Black Messiah for a long time because it was a limited release. So being able to watch it on HBO Max when I wanted to was perfect, but movies like Godzilla versus Kong are always going to be in the theater, and I know I can go see that. And if you want to popcorn entertainment, that's your that's your play. But if you want to see those who wish me dead, but you're kind of antsy about spending the extra fifteen twenty bucks for a ticket, you can watch it on HBO Max, and I think it's a good blend.
2: Fair enough, but it's going away this year, so
1: it, it is. It is. Well,
2: but I think
1: Yeah, but I think the idea is that you, you have that option right now, and, and there are some really, you know, if Dune, I don't know about Dune in the Matrix 4 from Warner Brothers' perspective, but, you know, all of a sudden I was just perusing Twitter, you know, earlier today, and I saw Steven Soderbergh has a new movie that's scheduled for a July 1st release on HBO Max all of a sudden, so, you know, he just always pops up with a new movie, it seems like, but... It's stuff like that where I think you're going to get an expanded audience. It's like Netflix has, you know, they've touted having a new movie every week released on Netflix, and it's it, I think it gives people more opportunities to see movies that maybe they wouldn't get a chance to see in the theaters.
2: That's possible, but I would also argue that there's so much, so much stuff out there on streaming services right. that being in a theater, you know. Kind of sets it apart because there's so much on these streaming services, right? I mean, it's—I would have never, never found Jupiter's Legacy without a press release release from Netflix, and that's a move. That's something that's right in my wheelhouse, right? You see what I'm saying,
1: right? Um, I, I guess it just depends, but I yeah. see your point. Yeah, I understand where you're coming from. I think there's a lot of fatigue right now because. I think that when I compare like Netflix to HBO Max or to other places, Netflix just beats you over the head with something like they have 8 million different options. And that's great for the people that just want something to put on while they do work or while they cook or whatever they may do. Or sometimes, you know, you find something that's really good and you sit down and watch it. But I kind of, I kind of prefer the HBO Max route where less is more where you have good content quality over quantity and that's where I fear that spending the twenty billion dollars, like you would mention, maybe that means they're just going to throw, you know, throw mud at the wall and hope it sticks. And all of a sudden, you're going to have a bunch of content that maybe people don't really care about. It's just there to make it look better.
2: If that's content, because see, the, the, with the merger, you've got you've got that that scripted HBO Max right. scripted stuff. Discovery right. Plus, it's primarily reality in a way. Right. The, if the synergy is perfect. Because it's it really operating it is. in two different worlds.
1: Yeah.
2: So I have to assume that $20 billion is across both companies.
1: Right. So we'll see. Okay. That's a fair point. Do you think that, uh, I mean, obviously it looks like it might not go through until sometime next year, but do you feel like you're going to see one, you know, one merger with one, the price that HBO Max is, or do you think they're going to up the price as they add in content or, you know, however they decide to do this?
2: I think they take the Disney route and eventually bundle like um, ESPN right. Plus, Disney right. Plus, and Hulu. Now, uh, mind you, I, I, it makes sense. I, I don't subscribe to Discovery Plus. It's I like, don't either. That's the first streaming service I, I didn't even sample. It's like right. not interested. It wasn't
1: for me. Yeah. So. You know, but this- it might be interesting to blend the two together, to where if you have it under the HBO Max fifteen dollar a month plan, or I don't really know if you can bump it up because at this point you're already maxed out price wise. If you go any higher, you're going to definitely outprice yourself over the Netflix four K, you know seventeen ninety nine model. But see, here here's where the the,
2: the thing though, they're going to have to ask themselves one fundamental question is the HBO brand still that prestige brand? And do they want to, if if the answer is yes, do they want to dilute that prestige? Right. Ultimately, they wanna make money. Right. Obviously, but even, even with the development of HBO Max, they're still releasing, creating, making, Quality, quality shows, right? From yes. East Town being the primary, Absolutely. One. so you know, yeah. that's the big question. What do they want to do with these brands that make sense together but are possibly maybe serve two disparate demographics?
1: You know yeah. what I'm saying, yeah. I think the, the stigma with HBO is it's always been like a guy's network or it's always been like an adult's network. People sometimes forget that they have animated you know, they have animated movies on there, they have Sesame Street. And I think blending this in, you're probably gonna get the whole family involved. Like you said, it's a it's a really could kind of a good mesh, but do you feel like HBO Max has diluted itself though, with that prestige by offering this subscription based with ad supported service for ten dollars? That's gonna be Going to be coming out next month, and nah, nah, that's business. Do you think people are going to f- grab it? I mean, I can't imagine people are like, I can't wait to watch Game of Thrones and then have ten commercials in the middle of it.
2: Here's a question I have to ask you, and and here's that's like you said, that's going to be ten bucks, right? I paid for. I paid for Hulu without commercials. That's how much I hate commercials. <laughs>
1: five bucks make that big of a difference per month. I don't think so. I think I th- I, I, we don't know how many commercials you're going to be seeing, but I, I don't mind the commercials. And I the only, the only thing that I hate about the commercials is on Peacock. We have Peacock right now, the commercial supported one because we got a discount and they put commercials on at all times during movies. So I can't even watch movies now. Because at least with Hulu, we have the Disney Plus bundle through our phone plan. We have the commercial supported Hulu, but movies only play commercials at the very beginning and the very end, which I love. I love the idea that they aren't bogging it down in the middle there like you know Peacock is. But I don't I'm kind of curious how, how many commercials you'll see. I think HBO Max thought to themselves, we can't give away things like Game of Thrones and the Sopranos and all these other, you know, legacy shows. For less than ten dollars. I mean, maybe that's what I'm thinking is why they settled on a five dollar cheaper bundle for who knows how many advertisements you're gonna get per show. Keep in mind, that, that that's releasing, they're doing
2: that next month, I believe. Yeah. Month or the month after. Does it doesn't include the day and date movies
1: still left on their calendar? I don't know about that. I think they were I think oh, it was true. a big question. I don't know that I don't know that it did. I, I, I saw variety story today.
2: Yeah. Uh, the day and date movies, uh-uh. nope, nope. You got
1: to put it If do people really, I'm not saying they don't care about that, but do they care about that when you can still say, well, I'm getting HBO Max for cheaper so I can watch, you know, Big Bang Theory or Game of Thrones or The Sopranos or The Wire or whatever they want to watch? Why if it's why they're getting it. They may not care about the day and date release movies. I, maybe they do, I don't know, but I kind of get the sense that maybe. They're more concerned about well, I can now get Game of Thrones and The Sopranos and The Wire and Big Bang Theory and Friends and Fresh Prince of Blair for ten dollars instead of fifteen. Fair enough. Which I don't. I, I'm going to say this too, and I don't. I don't mean to go to bat for HBO Max all the time because I do love it. I watch a lot more HBO Max than I do anything else. But for those for those people that say that HBO Max is too expensive, that is just hogwash. I'm telling you, they're. <laughs> The only thing that HBO Max does not do in comparison to Netflix is offer all as much as they can with 4K. If HBO Max upgrades their certain things to 4K, their show lineup is as good as anybody's. And if they have 4K Game of Thrones or 4K whatever, they will rival Netflix no matter what. I don't care what anybody says. Netflix is just quantity over quality sometimes and they do have 4K which is great but you're paying 18 bucks a month for that and if hbo max stays at $15 a month and goes to 4K they're going to start really gaining i think on the stream and you know and you got to remember netflix had an 11 year 10 12 year head start on on the streaming game so they've built their library up even though hbo has sort of built a library up over decades now too but you know you got to You got I think people just need to remember that HBO Max still has pretty good stuff, you know, outside of the the HBO stuff, like Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Friends, you your Warner Brothers catalog. Yeah. I mean, I I love the fact that they have, you know, TCM movies on there. I mean, if I want to go watch 2001: A Space Odyssey, I can watch it right now on my TV with one click of the button. I don't really see Netflix having that kind of, you know, power at this point. And for me, it's big because I'm a movie fan who likes watching movies from the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and all the way up till today. Some Netflix fans don't care about that, but I do.
2: And that's why I almost canceled them a couple of years ago. I don't pay for Netflix. My my kids pay for it because they want to keep it. Yeah. I'm like, I don't watch this. But and anything I review from them, I get
1: uh, critics. Right. So there we go. Well, until Netflix starts getting movies like Casablanca and Citizen Kane and 2001 A Space Odyssey, HBO Max is going to be my preferred destination. I
2: got news for you. Look for segmentation to happen. Look for exclusivity to happen. Oh, yeah.
1: Oh, yeah.
2: NBC Comcast, Peacock, they've already talked about pulling Universal's catalog back and reserving it just just for the Peacock service.
1: Right. Well, they so, I think they have to, to, to stay viable. I really do. I mean, they st- have the office and other stuff, but if they don't, if they don't pull back those, those universal titles, they're going to be in trouble for staying relevant in this marketplace.
2: And then you, you might even, a lot of people, a lot of stuff I've been reading related to the Warner media merger says that look for NBC, Comcast and Paramount, Paramount to go
1: at it with, with a merger with their services. I think they have to. I, I think right now those two services, although they have some opportunity for growth, their original content is just non-existent. Almost, I, I think. Leave my
2: Star Trek alone. Okay. No, 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 no. no. I mean,
1: don't get me wrong. It's, I'm glad that they have that kind of stuff. And I will say that Paramount Plus has some underrated things about their catalog. It's just they don't have a very deep catalog of original shows, and you know, you know, they like they don't have. Um, Yellowstone, for instance, and everybody's like, "Why don't they have Yellowstone It's on Paramount Network?" But they don't own the rights to it right now to stream. So Peacock has it, but I think Peacock and it's almost like if it's almost like the HD DVD versus Blu-ray competition. Who's going to win out? It's almost like who picks who. You know, does if 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 Peacock and Paramount Plus were to pick HBO, you know, Warner Media, whatever you want to call it, that would really put them into the forefront of competing with Disney and Netflix easily, in my opinion. And again, they're only a year old. They're less than a year old right now with HBO Max.
2: You opened up a wound with that HD DVD and Blu-ray comment, dude. <laughs> you opened a wound. That one was sorry, big.
1: man. Uh, I'm sorry. I don't. Rest in peace, HD DVD. You know? I chose HD DVD. Oh no. Yeah. Uh, I got oh, lucky God. though.
2: I only. I only when when that announcement was made that. Blu-ray, basically, what I only had five movies, so okay. But it's like, but I did buy like three players at ninety-nine bucks each. Uh, when the yeah. dropped it to ninety-nine bucks, I'm like, this is over. HD DVD is winning.
1: Yeah. No Blu-ray. Okay. Yeah. All LNA, everybody's gravitating towards 4K, which is fine, but yeah. Well, uh, real quick here before we wrap up, uh, I kind of wanted to explore a fun topic. I know we talked a little serious, you know, HBO Max and Discovery Plus merger. But I was kind of curious, you know, George, you've been a film critic for a long time. I noticed that you use a letter grade system, okay? When I review stuff or have reviewed stuff, whether it be in college or whatever, I use the four-star system. So my question to you, George, is, how long have you been using the, the letter grade system and why do you use it?
2: Full disclosure?
1: Yeah. Well, to answer your first question, it,
2: I think it's been about four or five years now.
1: Okay.
2: And a former editor changed it to allow more flexibility
1: yeah.
2: in, in, in the system. And this is, this is the real kick here. Our system, you know how content systems can be buggy?
1: Yeah.
2: Couldn't print half stars. Ah, okay. that That's the big reason. But yeah. you know, I, I, I quasi-objected to start. I'm like, yeah, okay. But I've grown to like it because of that flexibility. Okay. Because it, it, it allows me, you know, there, there are times, and I'm sure you've come across it too, there are times where it, a movie is... Good enough with serious flaws. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. And that, that that puts me in that C C minus range. Okay. And, and that's easier to deal with than well, two looks two stars looks
1: horrible. <laughs> one and a half really looks bad. So it does, yeah. Now what what star system did you use? Were you a four or a five star guy before you went to letter grade? God, it's been so and long. There's only one right answer,
2: George. I, I honestly no. There's a third. I don't remember.
1: <laughs> Hold on. Let me let me see if I can pull up an old review. Um, <laughs> well, I'm, a star, I'm a star rating fan, but I understand where you're coming from on it doesn't print. But I've I've always been enamored with the four star rating, and I, I probably because when I started reading reviews, I would always read Roger Ebert, and he was a four he was a star a four star rating guy, and I always was. I always looked at it as it was – the only caveat is two-and-a-half stars is kind of when you're on the fence on a movie. But you know that anything three stars and above, you're there. It's it's a good movie. You liked it. Anything below two is obviously garbage. But I always was enamored with the three stars over the five stars because I thought the five stars got so complicated with just having so many stars out there. And you have half of this and you have three-and-a-half out of five. I always like the four stars because you have a, a nice little uniformity to it. Fair enough. I just pulled up my review on Twenty Two
2: Jump Street. Okay, <laughs> three and a half out of five stars.
1: Oh, George, you're killing me. Did you when you, when you started reviewing movies? Did you have that in mind? Did you did, going into it? Did you say I'm going to be a five star guy? I'm going to be a three star guy. I'm going to be a letter grade guy, or did you just? Did someone tell you, hey, you need to put a grade on this. What do you do?
2: It was the newspaper style, wherever I worked. Okay. It was, that that was an editor's decision. When I was at the News Herald, I was the entertainment editor, so I probably could have changed it, but okay. I didn't. Um, don't ask me what it was at the News Herald. I don't <laughs> remember. But um, it, it was just a matter of style. Um, I just wanted to be a movie critic. Yeah. I wanted – I. I wanted to be a movie critic since reading uh, Tony Mastriani was the critic's name in the Cleveland Press. Okay, and I started reading him. The first review of his I remember reading, and again I'll date myself, was The Godfather.
1: Okay, so so when you're looking at a movie, and this is this is what how I want to pick your brain. So when you're looking at a movie, everything probably starts either at an A or an F, and it works its way one way or the other, right? Is that kind of how you you go about doing it, or do you just go in and just blank screen it and just see what you see and then develop it from there?
2: A bit of both, because you know what? Nothing, I can't remember the last time I gave something an A. It was okay. recent, but an A has to be sheer perfection for me. You know, I may have been Ma Rainey. And that, yeah, my rainy may have been it, um, but I usually just go in with a blank palette, and it is what it is. You know, certain things negate other things. Acting positives can can negate the fact that the the director or the the script is off. Right. I mean, let's face it. A perfect examples: Denzel Washington has never given a bad performance. Right. But if we're being honest, he's had some crap to work with in his career.
1: Yeah. Yeah, he's made some bad. Not movies. a lot. Yeah. But,
2: it, but it's there. So movies like that, it's like, yeah I love you, Denzel. But
1: see, when you give something, okay, so B plus is like your go-to if you really liked it, but it wasn't perfect. Is that kind of fair enough to say? Yeah. yeah,
2: to get to that A level with me, you've got to be ex- extraordinary. A- anything.
1: Now, when you're, so you're kind of referring as a masterpiece, as we the, the term that we would use in the film industry, the word that gets thrown around probably way too much by people, but masterpiece is probably the, the word that most people associate with great film. Now, when you're looking at a film and you're on that, that teeter between maybe you really loved it, like, like, how does Ma Rainey get an A and maybe something else got a B plus? Is there, is it because you felt like Ma Rainey was absolute perfection, nothing changes, nothing needed to change? Or could you live with some issues and everything else just elevated a small minor issue here and there? Here
2: it is. Ma Rainey knew what it was, and it was basically executed flawlessly as far as I was concerned. Okay. From the direction... And especially the performances. Right. There wasn't a bad note um, out of any performer in that film, and I'd argue that there should have been at least one other Oscar winner from that, from that movie. But yeah. they had tough competition this, this year, so okay. um, there was there. It was it was flawless to me.
1: Okay. Yeah, you know, one of the things that it's it's funny I always get from some of my friends when I, I give a certain movie a, a a good star rating or a bad one or whatever it may be and they're like, "Well, how can you like this movie or that movie?" And and oftentimes they're two different genres. Uh, are you when you go into a comedy or a drama or an action movie, are you basically looking at this action movie needs to deliver on what action movies need to deliver on? Is that kind of how you go into a genre and say This is this is this grade. This movie's this grade, and this movie and this movie, and and it just goes down the list of good to bad. Sort of, but it's like
2: being an action movie is no excuse for bad performances. Sure, you know, I I can only think of one. What's the guy's name? Ponytail. Uh, Steven Seagal movie. I can right. only think of one that I really liked.
1: Right.
2: Um, because he was a lousy actor. Right. It was a great action movie, but he was a crap actor. Right. Um, by the same token, Die Hard, which is probably considered the, the action standard of the last, let's call it, last 30 years. Right. I'd I'd say the French Connection is the standard, but but let let us let, say Die Hard. Die Hard transcended the genre, in my mind, because of Bruce Willis, right? Alan Rickman, who I still miss on film to yeah. this day. The action, the action sequences are well directed. The, the script was well-written, balance, humor, pathos, whatever you want to call it. But the one thing that really stood out about that movie is the fact that within that movie, and I forget who wrote the screenplay, he was able to build a relationship between uh, John McClane and uh, Reginald Bell, John- uh, Bell Johnson's cops. Right. I mean, you look at it, that's, that's the absolute strength of that movie. And to be able to do that and give you everything else,
1: was that tra- transcended everything for me. Now, have you ever gone into a movie and you were just enthralled with it, you loved it, but you knew it had some flaws, even if they were minor or maybe one little thing that stood out? Have you ever said to yourself, this isn't a movie, it just isn't perfect? Or is that the standard it has to be perfect? It has to be perfect. Okay.
2: no. Now I've I've had movies where I've given out good grades and well back then it was stars like
1: right.
2: you you know the quote blurbs you, you see. Yes. Uh, yes. Um, yeah. um yeah, the first Scooby Doo movie. My quote was at <laughs> the top of one of Warner Brothers ad. I, I have no shame about it. I clipped it. It was one of my first ones. I clipped, and I still have it. It's like, you know, I, I try not to be a film snob, but are there some that I'd
1: love to have back? Yeah, there are plenty of those. Okay. We'll, we'll probably get into, we'll, we'll get into some of those topics at later in later shows. But, um, yeah, when I think of a four-star film, I don't necessarily think of perfection or a masterpiece. I almost – it doesn't have to be something that, you know – Everything doesn't need to change. It's perfect the way it is. I look at it as it's a great entertainment, and I don't mean it in the slight of oh, it's an action movie. I mean it as in it kept me enthralled throughout. I enjoyed pretty much almost every single element, whether it's acting, directing, writing, you know, cinematography, whatever it may be. And for that, I would give a four stars to. Um, you know, or if I if I'm on the fringe, then maybe I might bump it down, but. I always look at that as it doesn't have to be a masterpiece because I think it's so challenging to make a perfect film, but I I don't think it's challenging to make a great film. And I think there's a difference between, you know, something like great is perfect, like a Citizen Kane where you couldn't imagine anything being different, but compared to, you know, like I would give Pulp Fiction four stars and I love that movie, but I know that there's some things that are overindulgent and not needed but it was just, it, it encapsulated me, and I loved it. It was, everything just clicked for me, even though I can say, oh, well, they, they might not have needed this scene, or this scene may have gone on a little too long, or, you know, it maybe felt like it was more important than it needed to be, but I still loved it, and that's why I can't not give it a four-star. So that's kind of how I look at it. And that means, but that doesn't mean that Pulp Fiction is on the same level as Citizen Kane to me. It just means that they're both in that four-star stratosphere. Fair enough. All right, George. Well, uh, any final thoughts on, and uh, anything that we discussed today or just what you're streaming or just anything uh, going on? What am I streaming? You know what?
2: I see a quiet place two Saturday. Okay. I still have to see a quiet place
1: one though. So. <laughs> I, I have to admit, I did not see a quiet place. I'm not really into that genre so much. I'll watch it if it's whatever, but yeah, I'm not really a go to the theater kind of guy on those movies, but, uh, well, we'll be interested to see what your uh, your thoughts are on that. Uh, we definitely appreciate your time, as always, and I'm sure we'll have some more uh, riveting discussion here uh, in the near future. We definitely appreciate it, George.
2: All right. Thank you much, sir. Yeah.
1: Thank you. Hey, everybody. Craig Schout back here at the Ohioan Podcast, and here are some Ohioan weekend reviews. Uh, this week we're going to be looking at some very interesting selections. The first movie is Class Action Park. This is a movie that came out last August on HBO Max. It is an absolutely riveting and entertaining documentary from start to finish. It tells the story of this dangerous, almost legendarily, uh, legendary dangerously uh, park, water park called Action Park in New Jersey that hurt a lot of people that actually... Was not really designed by engineers like you would expect uh, that design rides at Cedar Point or Kings Island. Um, It was uh, designed to to sort of be creative and fun and interesting, but not with a design for safety at all. uh, With some of the rides and maybe some of the jumps that people could do off of cliffs and things like that. But the the thing about this documentary that I really enjoy was it it talked to people that had um, you know frequent Frequent at the park, uh, that worked at the park, and it, it paints this picture of how devastatingly dangerous something like this could be. And yet, maybe back in the eighties and maybe into the nineties, some a lot of people may not have really thought about it as being something that was dangerous or legendary. You know, legendary for its being dangerous. But yet, a lot of people, you know, despite the the fact that it's considered one of the most dangerous parks ever created a Lot of people had sort of this reverence for the park as they were talking about, you know, being frequent visitors of it uh, Putting their lives on the line, you know Kids being kids just kind of having fun and not really thinking of the potential consequences even though uh, in many cases there were a lot of broken bones and injuries and some deaths as well at the Action Park in New Jersey, but at the end of the day, I think what uh, the director Seth Porges and Chris Charles Scott III do is they paint a picture of, yes, this was a dangerous park, but also there was some fondness of it. It was sort of a rite of passage for a lot of uh, people in the Northeast or New Jersey that were, uh, you know, frequenting the park or traveling and wanting to to sort of be kids and risk, risk maybe not risk their lives, but, you know, be thrill seekers, if you will. Um, which is what we see a lot of times with parks in general. You're a thrill seeker. You like roller coasters. You like rides. And I think this uh, park really spoke to that of the early, you know, the the late 80s, early 90s era of of kids just going out, being on their own, parents allowing them to just ride their bikes for hours on end and, and not really necessarily know exactly where they are because there wasn't cell phones. You couldn't call people. You'd have to, you know, realistically, you'd have to find them, you know the old-fashioned way, going out and looking for them, or telling them you got to be home by sundown. So this part, this this film really tells a fun story, an interesting story. It's something that I wasn't really familiar with; I had never really heard of Action Park, but it was a very interesting film. And I will say that, you know, one of the things i I'm, I'm not a thrill seeker. I'm not a roller coaster person, but I will say this. I can understand why some people are, and that's fine. That's great. I'm glad they are, and but at, after watching this this uh, film and seeing some of the actual you know rides and how they were you know constructed and, and maybe the engineering that didn't go into it to dis- to determine if people would actually be safe, I found it odd that people really wanted to go to this place knowing that friends of theirs got hurt or there was another uh, you know news in the you know story in the newspaper of an injury or death or something like that of why you would want to go down these certain rides that just were not well thought of and well planned like most roller coaster rides or slides are so at the end of the day i look at a, a movie like class action, action park i like documentaries that and tell me stories that i've never heard before or go deeper into stories that maybe I have heard about. This is a a movie that tells a a pretty unique story that I have never heard about. Some of the legal issues that Class Class Action Park uh, talks about is legal issues with Action Park and some of the deaths that occurred and injuries, lawsuits, things like that, that piled up that eventually just sank this park completely. And for that, I am giving Class Action Park three and a half out of four stars. It is a really fun and interesting documentary. Always holds your attention. Um, and, you know, realistically, too, it's, it's just it just kind of breezes through. It's an hour and a half documentary. doesn't take long to, to really get into everything and, and really tell the story of something that many people may know if they were in that northeast, uh, you know, the northeast part of the country, you know, would know. Or, you know, for someone like me who had never even heard of this park before, really interesting story, though. Now, moving on, we're going to have uh, a, a really a real treat for me. One of the best films of the last decade, *Parasite*. You can watch this film whether it be at home on 4K Blu-ray or on Hulu, which is, you know, I, I definitely suggest anybody that can find this movie. *Parasite* won Best Picture. It was the first non-English. Film to, to win Best picture, not film to win Best Picture, not non-English-speaking film um, to win Best Picture, as it won for 2019, and it was truly, for me, a, a terrific film experience. Now, obviously, this is a subtitled picture, but if you don't mind that, this is something to really sink your teeth in at home, whether on 4K or on Hulu. I had a chance to watch this film uh, toward the end of 2019, and I was really blown away by it. Uh, Bong, Joon-ho, Bong Joon-ho directed this. You know, you may know him from some other films like Mother or Snowpiercer. He, he really has a command of this thriller genre. That's also more of a you know a social commentary satire. It blends so many things into one. At times, you kind of think to yourself, how can something you know so tragic, be so funny, and so interesting at the same time. It's dramatic, it's funny, it's thrilling. It tells the story of a working-class family that's trying to make ends meet. They end up sort of hooking up this entire family. Mother, mother, father, daughter, and son kind of hook up with this wealthy family, and they start to infiltrate this wealthy family essentially by working for them and kind of swindling. They're almost uh, grifters, if you will, where they, you know, take on odd jobs, they they lie, fudge on a resume, if you will, and essentially they're trying to tell these, uh, this family that, yeah, they're, they're qualified for certain jobs, whether it's tutoring or being a driver, whatever it may be, and they sort of infiltrate this family, and essentially they start kind of living the good life, you know, they 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 kind of take it a little bit too far maybe and, and start living the good life instead of maybe just going back to their home they start you know really befriending every you know everybody in this this wealthy family and everybody from the from the mother to the father to the daughter to the son all start working at the same time for this family which eventually sort of complicates things but what bungju hone does here is he creates drama and tension throughout. The tension kind of builds, and we're building. It's a slow build, but it's not a slow build in a bad way. It's earning its stripes. At, at one point, it does get a little violent towards the, the latter half of the film, but it earns that right. It's not just being violent for the sake of being violent. This film really helps build on itself, where we start to see this, this family's dynamic kind of crumble a little bit as they try to, to almost take a little bit more. It's the, you know, you give someone inch, they take a mile. And this is the kind of example of that, where they're trying to essentially weed out another, another woman who works for the family, so they can kind of take over and live the good life off of this wealthy family. So in a lot of ways, you can, you can kind of see that they, they take things for granted. They, they start mooching off of this family even more than they were by just having jobs. And then ironically enough what what Bong Joon-ho really does well here I believe is he tells this story where it's not just the parasites taking over the wealth it's not the 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 lower middle the lower working class family being a parasite to the wealthy family that it, it then becomes more of a parasite of a lower class to a lower class so it's kind of like you're eating your own kind essentially where you have two working, struggling families trying to make ends meet that begin to, you know, go at each other. And it really paints this really deep picture ultimately of it's not just the parasite of, you know, one family to the wealthy. It's also everything in between. And I think Wong Jun ho really does a great job of telling a very full story. It's very dramatic. It's very suspenseful and it's very thrilling at the very end of the film as you know everything kind of reaches a boiling point between all of these three families that are essentially you know going in and out of you know after each other but you know uh, most people when they think of parasite you know they think of maybe the the lower class family mooching off of the uh, the upper class wealthy family but in a lot of ways it's also about the wealthy family too i think being parasites to the to the uh, lower income families being able to take advantage of them make them do certain things for them Rather than you know just saying well you're going to get paid well you know they're using them to their advantage too so it's it's really kind of a cyclical process where everybody takes advantage of everybody else. Now, obviously, this was uh, a film that scored several Oscar nominations. Bong Joon-ho won for best director. It won four overall. Of course, Bong Joon-ho, and of course, best picture being the first. Non-English speaking film to win Best Picture, and this was, uh, you know, quite honestly, a lot of people didn't know what to expect because, at the end of the day, they thought this film could win Best Picture, but it, it had never been done before, so it was very surprising when uh, when the movie was announced as Best Picture. But uh, it was a pleasant surprise nonetheless. Uh, Bong Jun ho also won for his screenplay and the film which was an international film anyway, also won for Best International Feature Film out of South Korea. So Parasite, to me, after digesting it the first time, it was a really visceral experience, beautiful to look at, uh, great story. I think the more and more you watch this film, you're going to pick up on more things that are just kind of sprinkled in there, a la the Easter eggs that we talk about a lot of times in Marvel movies and things like that. I think you're really going to enjoy this. Yes, it is subtitled, but, um, you know, I think a lot of times for me, subtitles allow me to have more of an engrossing experience with a film. It allows me to, you know, really invest even more into a film when I have to read the subtitles, you know, while watching what's going on on screen. So Parasite for me is the type of film that um, it was among my, my favorite films of the last decade in the 2010s as it came out late towards the at the end of that run in 2019 Um, and at times you kind of get you feel like you might be a little bit more of a prisoner of the moment but this is a movie that i think is definitely going to stand the test of time we will be talking about this movie for decades and decades to come it will be the thing that you know a lot of people study in film schools because it is that good four stars out of four for parasite you can currently watch it on hulu if you have streaming device or obviously you can buy it right now on 4K Blu-ray uh, or DVD as well. So definitely a huge uh, achievement in film. I definitely recommend everybody go out and see this film if they can because it is truly worth it. Now obviously uh, like I said, you know, throughout the last few weeks we've always liked to to give you a free streaming option. So some people maybe just don't have the income to to pay for streaming right now. Well there's there's so many great options I think for movies on free, on free services, whether it's Peacock, IMDb TV, Pluto TV. Uh, there are so many other options. I mean, even if you have a library card, you can uh, get on Hoopla or Canopy, and there are free options there if you have a library card, which is pretty unique as well. So there's really no excuse to not find something out there to stream. If you're looking for something to stream on the weekend or a binge-watch a TV series, There are always uh, free options out there. And this week I'm going to look at uh, the 2006 movie Children of Men. This movie right now is streaming on Peacock. You can watch it ad-supported, but it's on the free version of Peacock, which is kind of unique because this is uh, also, after I just gushed out about uh, Parasite, Children of Men was one of my favorite films of the 2000s decade. Uh, The 2006 release was directed by Alfonso Caron, uh, you may remember uh, some of his uh, other previous works uh, recently. More recently, you might know to remember him uh, from directing Gravity with Sandra Bullock, which was a terrific, terrific science fiction film. Um, but he's also directed um, Roma as well, which was an Oscar contender a few years ago. Um, maybe a lot of people consider his crowning achievement as a director of a very personal film. He did direct uh, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, which may be something that you might remember a little bit more in the mainstream from him. A lot of other uh, films are a little bit more subtle, but definitely uh, Gravity and Roma you should check out. But Children of Men, I think, was a masterwork from the from the beginning. I, I have to admit, when I first got out of the theater after watching it in two thousand and six, I was I was intrigued by the premise, which essentially tells the story of a, an Earth that no longer sees fertility we have infertile uh, women and men and basically in the year 2027 there are no new children born on on a on a regular basis until there is one woman who is pregnant and it's considered that miracle of hope essentially uh for the for the fate of humanity as most people believe that humanity is going to die out because no one is pregnant anymore we're not having children so, the, the fear is that humanity will eventually weed itself out and die. But this movie provides that hope. This woman is pregnant, and then a group of activists, including Clive Owen, are tasked with essentially trying to help her uh, keep safe and, and be able to deliver a baby and, and really be the beacon of hope for humanity. Um, and Karan really directs this film uh, sort of in like a, a really tight window. We're talking less than an hour and 50 minute uh, film. But from start to finish, it just really is a quick hit, almost uh, plays like a thriller, but mo- mostly a drama where there's a little bit of, uh, you know, dialogue between Julianne Moore and Clive Owen's characters. They, they used to be married, now divorced, but kind of reunite uh, as activists to try to help this uh, pregnant woman uh, survive and, and, you know, get to safer grounds. But there's a, a beautiful, it's a beautifully photographed film. I mean, Karan and his, You know, and his team really understood how to paint a beautiful picture, despite the fact that it seemed like it was such a bleak landscape where there was, uh, you know, battles going on, there were, you know, riots and things like that, and and everybody just—it seemed like it it should have been more bleak than it really was. But somehow, Karan is able to find some beauty in some of those, uh, you know, those movements where it's sort of an adventure film where they're on the road, they're trying to find. You know safe haven for this pregnant woman and one of the you know the great things about this film is it has perhaps one of the one of the best tracking shots I've ever really seen in in cinema it's a one shot tracking shot uh, or at least it's shot to look sometimes you can get some digital stitching but this is a true sort of a real true to life tracking shot where we're trying to see these uh, activists take this this pregnant woman into safety, and they're running away from uh, motorcycle uh, gang, mem- you know, basically gangs of people trying to stop this, you know, from happening. The, you know, they just uh, it's it's almost like it's an uneducated, not really knowing what's going on in the world, and, and realizing that there is hope with with this woman's pregnancy, but um, they're they're essentially trying to stop these people from from getting safety, getting to safety. And this tracking shot that uh, really just, to me, just kind of encapsulates the, the 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 strangeness of this film, the the fear as as we see this camera just move in and in and around this car where they're getting you know car you know bombs thrown at them or fire bombs thrown at them, and it's a chaotic scene and there is a death uh, that that occurs in with one of the characters here, but one of the the great things about the shot is it just it just speaks to the chaotic nature of what's going on around them as they're trying to find hope and they're trying to understand everything the gravity of the situation that they're in while also of course trying to get this woman to safety many you know clive owen of course the main character he doesn't even know who these people are really aside from his wife or his ex-wife i should say and he's trying to like wrap his brain around all of this while still trying to keep himself safe as, you know, the country and the world has become war-torn because of how society has dissolved into understanding that when the last human being dies, it's over. There's no babies, there's no children coming, but uh, obviously there is the one piece of hope with the pregnant woman that uh, Owen and his team are trying to keep safe uh, and and move forward into, you know, giving birth and being a safe, you know, being in a safe place uh, amidst all the chaos. So, Alfonso Cuaron really directs this film. I mean, this is a a terrific, terrific film. Clive Owen gives a great performance as sort of the, not anti-hero, but sort of the hero thrust into a role that he may not have been ready for, uh, but uh, ultimately maybe helps him kind of uh, overcome some adversity that he has uh, dealt with along with his ex-wife. And, you know, Cuaron really makes this just a visceral, beautiful experience I highly, highly recommend *Children of Men*. It is a terrific film. Uh, like I said, it was uh, among the top films of the two thousands that I had, and it was uh, certainly worth uh, going to the theater for. It's a beautiful looking film. As I said, you can stream this on Peacock for free. It's ad supported though, or you can of course buy the Blu Ray and uh, you know buy it the home video route as well, uh, which I would also highly recommend. But you can. Uh, Rented on various uh, devices like Apple TV, Amazon, Google Play, uh, Voodoo, Redbox, DirecTV. And then, of course, you can buy it on Amazon, uh, DirecTV, Redbox, Apple TV as well. So there are plenty of options uh, for those of you that are looking for uh, a very juicy, you know, sink your teeth in kind of drama with uh, a little bit of bleakness, but also a little bit of hope tied into it. Uh, It is just a gorgeous film. I give this film four stars out of four. Uh, This is Craig Shop with the Ohioan Podcast, and this has been your Ohioan Weekend Reviews. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Ohioan Podcast. Craig Shop here with our special guest, Bob Garver, our New York City film critic. Bob, how you doing? I'm doing great. Happy Monday. Yeah, it's a good Monday, and obviously uh, it's always good when you get a chance to go out to the theater. So I know you saw four new releases, so let's get right into it. Uh one of the biggest releases we've seen here uh this year was Spiral, the uh from the Book of Saw. Not sure if you're a Saw fan, Bob, but uh what they make nine movies in that franchise and here they're uh sort of branching out with Chris Rock leading the way as a detective. What did you think of uh Spiral? I, I believe this is the uh ninth movie in the um okay. in the
0: franchise. Um the uh most recent since I believe uh Jigsaw in uh I want to say the mid, twenty tens.
1: Okay.
0: And uh, yeah, I thought uh, the bold decision to uh, cast Chris Rock as the lead in this movie uh, was a uh, very interesting decision. made for a made for a interesting trailer when uh, when you you see Chris Rock um, in this cop movie and it looks like it's going to be a, a bad boys like action comedy and then you find out it's a it's a saw movie.
1: Right. Were you a fan of the franchise? I mean, obviously they've kind of beat us over the head over the years with how many they've released. But any any interest in the Saw franchise at all since its uh, inception in the early two thousands? Uh, I am not a fan of the Saw franchise. As a matter
0: of fact, I didn't see a single one of the films until Jigsaw okay. uh, in the year uh, in the mid 2010s
1: Okay, um, I did see the initial Saw, and then I think I might have I, I might have caught maybe like two or three more of them. They're, they're all not very good. Um, always was intrigued by the premise, though, which is essentially a criminal plays these games with people. Some people have nefarious lifestyles, whatever it may be, um, and sort of in a roundabout way makes them choose either their life or maybe admitting failure or admitting admitting things that they've done in their lives uh, over, over death, you know, in these uh, elaborate games. And they've certainly been become more elaborate over the uh, the franchise's uh, tenure. But uh, you know, Spiral seemed kind of interesting. Obviously, you've got Chris Rock playing against his comedy type. Uh, usually, he's a fun, you know, demonstrative comedian. Here, he's playing a detective. How do you think uh, Chris Rock brings the acting chops here to this drama?
0: Um, actually, after a while, you you barely remember that. Um that, that he's a comedian because this uh, story is so serious and requires him to to be so serious uh, that, you, that you forget he has that uh, comedy starting point
1: uh, but he's fine he makes for a,
0: a sympathetic lead um, Samuel L Jackson plays his father um, we see him in in flashbacks with a quite ridiculous mustache that's pretty
1: funny. <laughs> So obviously this is uh, from the book of Saw. So we're talking about a criminal mastermind that unleashes these, you know, these games against people and his form of justice, their form of justice. Um, You know, obviously we're talking about horror. I know you've seen a lot of horror movies here lately. Uh, How does this kind of stack up with uh, when it comes to the uh, sort of the blood and guts of the horror genre? Um
0: wasn't Wasn't crazy about this one. Uh, I still say the best recent horror movie was uh, In the Earth. Uh, the uh, strobe, the strobe light, uh, written one from a, about a few months back.
1: Okay,
0: but um,
1: yeah, the traps. I mean, they're in this movie, but they aren't really emphasized, right? Okay. Um, was there anything you know interesting about this film? Anything stand out that maybe you, you, you found to have some redeemable quality about it?
0: Um, other than the rock performance, not uh, not really. The characters are all uh, pretty generic. Uh, every every cop on his force is incredibly corrupt. Okay. Um, so there's not a whole lot of people to really root for. Right. Um, and as for the mystery of who the killer or killers are, uh, I was able to figure it out instantly. I, I had a theory going in that turned out to be right.
1: Okay. Um, well, obviously, it, it seems like they want to maybe have this become the next franchise or maybe spark the next set of franchise movies in this Saw universe. But, you know, it made $8 million over the box office weekend. Is this something that you feel like may may spawn some sequels and maybe become its its own little franchise?
0: Uh, yes, I do. I, I can see them doing at least uh, one more sequel. And I, um, I hope to, that they continue things with Chris Rock because he was <laughs> the – the one thing about this movie that, uh, that kind of works.
1: Okay. Uh, final grade for spiral.
0: I'm going to give it a C minus.
1: Okay. All right. Well, we, uh, we move from the horror genre to a little bit more of a drama, dramatic, uh, thriller action movie, uh, with those who wish me dead. Now this is the, uh, the recent, the most recent starring role here for Angelina Jolie. Obviously we'll see her later on this year in, uh, Eternals, but Angelina Jolie, um, Partnering up with Taylor Sheridan seems like it could be a match made in heaven. Obviously, Taylor Sheridan has had a nice recent track record of both writing and also directing with Hell or High Water, Wind River. Uh, he really you know, seems to have a, a good landscape, eye for landscape and, and making that a character. What did you think of Those Who Wish Me Dead? Well, uh, he definitely does do that uh, with, uh, with the landscape. Uh,
0: there's a lot of beautiful Montana scenery in this movie, or at least uh, alleged to be Montana. Yeah. Um, this is the latest um, adult goes on the run with a child movie. Uh, we yeah. saw it uh, with uh, the very good news of the world last right. December. We saw it uh, with the Marksman in January with Liam Neeson. And in this movie, it's uh, Angelina Jolie teaming up with a uh, kid whose father was a uh, was an accountant who uncovered something uh, unflattering about a uh, uh, we know we know about a mob boss and there's an allusion to uh, uh, senators and governors as well. But uh, this is yeah, it's it's a type of movie that we've seen a lot lately. And I'm not sure Angelina Jolie was the best uh, choice for this. I think that this required somebody maybe a little more. Um, a little more grizzled. Uh, you can tell Angelina Jolie, uh, as much as she tries to play down her glamorous image, uh, that she's, um, she's too likable for this kind of role, quite frankly.
1: Well, you know, Taylor Sheridan, you know, burst onto the scene in 2015 writing Sicario. Uh, he's written, he wrote and directed uh, wind river. Obviously he's uh, behind Yellowstone, the TV series. Um, you know, he seems to have really, you know, developed a, a really nice niche in this market. He's obviously now going more towards the writing and directing side of things. You know, I, I kind of thought after Sheridan burst onto the scene with Sicario, Heller, High Water, Wind River, that, you know, he seemed like he was at, at the very least going to be, you know, one of those great screenwriting talents that we see in our in our era. How did, You know, what does he do here as a screenwriter and director? To, to Does he maybe reinforce that? Thought that I have, or, or maybe is this a swing and a miss for him?
0: Uh, this is a this is a step down for him. Um, this was very clearly based on a book, and not everything that was on the page translates to uh, translates to uh, a movie very well, uh, especially in terms of action. Um, something that struck me as the uh, uh, as odd about the action was. Um, that everybody is in danger from a forest fire in this movie, mm-hmm. but it's only the fire. There's uh, barely any mention of the danger of, of smoke inhalation, uh, which to yeah. my understanding is, is often more deadly than the fire in these situations. Right. But uh, no, it's just, it's just flames that, you know, pretty much chase people. And, uh, and, and there's barely any mention of smoke.
1: Right. Uh, overall, what did you think? Uh, what's your final grade here for those who wish me dead? Um,
0: once again, I'm giving it a C minus and that's, that's generous.
1: Okay. All right. Well, now we've got a couple of other movies here, maybe a little bit lesser known than those first two, but, uh, tell us a little bit about finding you a little drama romance. Uh, tell us a little bit about this film.
0: All right. Um, I need to uh, look up some names on my phone because these, uh, the actors in this movie are not terribly well known. Uh, so I want to make sure I get their names, right. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I was gonna say, a a lot of them, uh, aside from maybe Vanessa Redgrave, uh, sort of- Oh yeah, well, Redgrave. Um,
0: But uh, okay, so it's, uh, the film stars uh, Rose Reed as a uh, violin player from New York City who travels to Ireland uh, for a study abroad program and source of, in search of inspiration. And um, while on her flight, she meets a movie star Played by Jedediah Goodacre. Um, neither of these lead actors have uh, Wikipedia pages, by the way, I notice. Okay. Uh, but Jedediah Goodacre uh, plays, this, uh, plays this very well known movie star um, that the two strike up a, uh, an uneasy friendship and um, they uh, continue to see each other through the coming months in, in Ireland.
1: Well, I know we've talked a lot about uh, movies that have incorporated music. Obviously, this is no different. A young violinist looking for, you know, uh, sort of her spark, and you know, it's sort of an interesting uh, idea of how how much music has sort of caught on into the to the more of a mainstream being in film a lot more frequently than it has been in years past. Um, do you do you find that there's a reason maybe for that, maybe why we're seeing more movies that are sort of centered around music and and, and maybe people looking for inspiration in music. I'm not really sure music has
0: ever really gone away, but um, right.
1: it's, we're seeing it a lot more though in the, in, the, in recent years.
0: I, uh, well, I, I suppose the uh, lives of talented musicians are, are interesting. Yeah. But, uh, well, yeah. There's a lot of, there's a lot of great violin and, and uh, fiddle playing. Okay. Uh, in this film, and a lot, of, uh, a lot of debate about the difference between the two.
1: Sure. Well, I know this is uh, obviously a largely unknown cast, with the exception maybe of some veterans like Vanessa Redgrave, Tom Everett Scott, I recognize. Uh, but, uh, you know, obviously we've talked before about, you know, maybe a cast not being as experienced on screen. How does that translate here? Does it work? Or are they, you know, do they show they're, they're being novice or, you know, how do you think maybe casting unknowns really maybe helps or hurts this film?
0: I didn't really think anybody seemed like they didn't know what they were doing here, if, if that's what you're asking. Um, I do think uh, the screenplay lets them down at points, um, especially uh, considering that this is, once again, based on a book. Sure. Um, and the book could probably get away with having... 20 different storylines, which which this movie does. There's uh, stuff coming out of nowhere. Uh, there's the relationship between uh, Jedediah Goodacre and his father played by Tom Everett Scott. Um, you know, there's that storyline. There's the storyline of uh, Rose Reed staying at a bed and breakfast and the struggles of, of the bed and breakfast to uh, to get publicity. There's the storyline with her and Vanessa Redgrave and, and this uh, woman's history. And there's a storyline with her uh, trying to find a tombstone uh, that was drawn by her late brother. okay, uh, And just, there's so much going on. The movie goes two hours, which uh, a light little romantic comedy like this shouldn't do. Right. Um, there need there needed to be some stuff trimmed. Uh, probably, probably the stuff with, uh, with Redgrave. I hate to say it, even though she brings a lot of star power to the film.
1: Sure. Okay. Did you have a final grade for uh, the film?
0: I know this is going to sound like Overkill, but (laughs) C-minus.
1: No problem. Hey, that's what you think. All right, so let's move on to another movie that sort of has an intriguing premise uh, called Profile. Now, this is a movie that, uh, if I'm not mistaken, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, that this was uh, made entirely sort of via uh, Skype or video conferencing. Is that correct? Yes, everything uh, in the film takes place on a computer screen. Okay, is that, you know, obviously when you're talking about gimmicks like that, and I know it may, it may actually make more sense even now during the, the era of COVID, even though this movie was made pre COVID and it's finally getting a release out. But, uh, is that, that's much- right. This movie was made way back in 2018. Right. Is that too much of a gimmick or does it work here?
0: Um, I feel that the film where it worked the best was in searching a thriller with, uh, John Cho yeah. a few years back. Um, that said, this is probably better than the uh, unfriended movies. Okay, uh, a couple of uh, thrillers from uh, I want to say 2016 and 2018 respectively. But it's it's between the two. It's about a uh, reporter who goes uh, undercover to infiltrate ISIS at its recruiters, sure. uh, who have been um, recruiting young women from from Britain as of late.
1: Okay. Well, I know that uh, part of this movie is uh, basically, you know, them trying to suck her into being a recruit, you know, to be recruiting her. Um, you know, how does this movie kind of play out? Obviously an hour and 45 minutes or so runtime, you're talking about being on screen only in, in a sort of a Skype or, a, you know, a zoom type conference call. Uh, you know, does it, does it, does the movie work? I mean, for an hour and 45 minute, uh, sort of thriller drama.
0: Uh, it works at points. Um, there are some moments of genuine suspense and some moments of genuine emotion. Um, but uh, one thing, um, one thing that was distracting to me and is distracting to a lot of reviewers who are also journalists, uh, is what a bad journalist this this main character is because okay. uh, she does not put a lot of research into into her role. Okay.
1: Is that as far as maybe her role as an actor being, you know, playing this character or as a. No, I think it's just the way it's written. Okay. So problem issues with the screenplay that happens. Um, overall, did you have a final grade for this film? Uh, to be different, I'll give it a C. <laughs> okay. All right, Bob. Well, we definitely appreciate your time as always uh, a lot of new, new stuff to uh, come out this week. I mean, anything uh, going on this week that you're interested in seeing?
0: Uh, there is very little coming up this week. Okay. Um, Dream Horse is probably going to be the big new movie. Uh, there's also uh, an intriguing limited release called uh, The New Order, uh, which is about uh, the rich being being overtaken by the poor.
1: Okay. All right, Bob. Well, we definitely look forward to talking to you again next week. Uh, thanks so much for joining us here on the Ohioan Podcast.
0: Thank you very much. This is the highlight of my week.
1: All right, we'll take it. Care-
0: Hi, I'm Jennifer Mooney.